That's not bad for the size. <laughs> it's not bad for the size of the group. It's a good thing you guys didn't show up for first service. You would have been standing. I tried to get some of the people in first service to think about second service, so maybe it'll be a little different next week. I'm not going to ask you what Dennis preached on last week. Does anybody remember? Huh? <laughs> Jesus. And he did make a big deal about who Jesus is. Not who he was, because he still is. So Jesus is not this really cool teacher who taught some really cool things, because if that's all he is, then it doesn't really matter. There's lots of good teachers. But he said of himself that he was God. And if he said that, then he's either one of three things. Remember what those three things are? He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he really is God himself. A couple of weeks ago, Karen and I went up to Puyallup, and we went to the church that we attended for so long up there. And the fellow preached on this question. He said, who is God? You ever stop to think about who is God? Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34. In chapter 32, Moses has been given the Ten Commandments, comes down the hill and finds people partying, destroys the Ten Commandments, makes people do some really weird things, and people lost their lives that, that day. <clears throat> chapter 33, Moses asks God to reveal his glory to him, and God said, I can't do that. If you see my face, you will die. But he says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over your face. I'll walk by. He took his hand away, and all he saw was the back of God. Now, I don't know if this is all in chronological order, but in chapter 34, beginning at verse 1, reading out of the New Living Translation, Then the Lord told Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first one. And then he says, get back up on the mountain. I'll fill those things back in again. Moses gets up there. <clears throat> excuse me. In beginning of verse 5, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. Can you imagine? And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord. The God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshipped. Why do you suppose God had to introduce himself? 
Why did he have to say, I am Lord, I am Yahweh? Why do you suppose he had to do that? Say again. We're idiots, for sure. But think about that rabble of people down at the face or at the foot of that mountain. Those Jews. They were not people who knew God. They had been raised in a culture that had multiple gods. And here they are, rescued out into the wilderness. They did not know God. So God introduced himself and said all of these things about himself. Do you think it matters? Think about this question. Do you think it matters what God says about himself? Does it matter what God says about himself? It absolutely matters. And we should pay attention to what he says about himself. So, last week we were encouraged by who Jesus is. And now I want us to be those people that really want to know what God says about himself. And learn about that. Amen? Father, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful that you have not left us without an inability to find out who you are. You reveal yourself through your word. You draw us to yourself, people who do not know you, and then you reveal yourself to us more and more. And I am so grateful for that picture that Dan paints about the picture getting bigger and bigger as we get to know you better and better. Father, I pray that that would continue. In Jesus' name. The first, uh, we had a lot of people here. It was good to see. And they were sitting close. Yeah, but the good ones are here. Second service, because I'm normally at second service, so I don't have to introduce myself, because I think, I think everybody here knows me, maybe not. I'm Mitch Tingley. Uh, my wife and I have attended PCBC now for 15 years, and I am one of four elders here at Pacific Coast Bible Church, and I have the opportunity to preach as Dan, our, our main preaching elder, is out of town. So, as I told Carmen, you get the B team today. <laughs> so, today's text is Luke 12, 35 through 40. And you can maybe just kind of put your finger on that section of Scripture because I've got a bunch of other Scripture we're going to be looking at before we actually get to that. Luke 12 is a text of Scripture speaking of the second coming of Jesus. So as Christians, we all understand Christ will return. Scripture tells us the second coming of Jesus. Tells us of the second coming of Jesus. Yet in the world around us, there seems to be an attitude or belief that his return is some sort of optional ending or one of many ways to interpret the end of this redemptive story. There are some that teach and believe that the second coming of Christ has already occurred. They teach 
that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was the fulfilling of judgment by Christ and that the Antichrist and Satan have been thrown into the lake of fire. We are now living with the new heaven and the new earth, and therefore the world now continues as it is intended to. This view is called preterism. The name comes from a Latin word, preter, which means past. They, preterists, understand that most of biblical prophecy was fulfilled in the first century A.D. This is not a teaching or belief that is new. As Paul makes reference to Hymenius, Alexander, and Philetus, they were teaching that the resurrection had already happened and probably taught that no future resurrection would come and all that the resurrection means is the soul awakes from sin. 2 Timothy 2, 16-17 says, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Let's also turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at 19 through 20. First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 1, 19 through 20. Actually, I'll start at 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In these verses, Paul is encouraging Timothy to remain faithful and true to Christ and the gospel, and in this he will be fighting those who have wandered from the faith and the true gospel, and have begun to teach heresy. Here he speaks of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who put aside their conscience and the truth, rejected the gospel, and began teaching a different doctrine, as spoken of in 1 Timothy 1, 3-7. 1 Timothy 1, 3-7 says, As I urged you, When I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions.
in these verses, Paul is encouraging Timothy to remain faithful and true to Christ and the gospel. And in this, he will be fighting those who have wandered from the faith and the true gospel. And if this sounds like a repeat, it is, because I just read that. So after 1 Timothy 3-7, through 7, it says, Because of this, Paul has removed them, which is Hymenaeus and Alexander, from the church, so their heretical teaching would not influence or damage the church. If you hear that the second coming of Christ has already taken place, or that this is just another Christian story that no one really thinks will happen, consider this. Do you think that history will just continue in its fallen state? If you really look around with a worldview, it doesn't seem possible. If you look around at our world, we are bent on destroying each other and ourselves. Romans chapter 8 speaks of this fallen world and a future restoration of all of creation, along with final human redemption of those who have put their faith in Christ. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 25. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Peter also speaks of a day of total transformation and renewal. So let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're looking at verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The day of the Lord will come suddenly, unexpectedly, 
with disastrous consequences for the unprepared. So all of this is a prelude to our text, which is in case you forgot, or actually in case I forgot, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 and 40, 35 through 40. Luke 12, 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Will you be ready? Will you be ready when Jesus comes again? Isn't this an important question for each of us to consider? Since Jesus is coming at an hour you do not expect, it makes sense that we should be prepared and looking forward to his return. Then the worry, fear, or stress is eliminated and replaced with a joyful anticipation of his second coming. When you consider our text, isn't it about the focus of our lives? Verse 35 and 36, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. On the surface, this may sound like you should always be dressed and ready to go with lights on. I told the first service, I said, yeah, I can see this. Mary Ellen and I are laying on our bed with our tennis shoes on. We're fully dressed. Hey, you better have your hoodie ready because it's going to be cold out there tonight and we have the, the nightstand light on. The King James translation says, Let your loins be girded about you and your lights burning. I think this actually gives us a better idea of what we are called to do. In these biblical times, most of the people, both men and women, wore long tunics in order to run, serve others, or even do battle. They would have to pull the tunic up above their knees. So I can just see this. If they were to grab the tunic on the sides and lift them up to above their knees to run, it would look like a bunch of people doing the cha-cha, because when I run, my hands move. Therefore, they would pull the tunic up and tuck it into a belt at their waist, freeing their hands to serve, work, or fight. When they heard, gird your loins, It was another way of saying, prepare yourself physically and mentally for battle. 
Here, it's saying to be spiritually active and growing. Verse 35 also says, keep your lamps burning. To do this required constant attention. They would need to keep oil levels full in the lamps and the wicks trimmed. If the servant cared for his master and honored him, he would do this in anticipation of his return. So how does this apply to us? We are called to worship and pray, and we're told that our bodies are the Lord's temple. Think about this. A temple is a building or a place dedicated to the worship or the presence of a deity. Anything considered to contain a divine presence. So what is that meaning for us? if our bodies are considered the Lord's temple. Anything that contains a divine presence. We are told when we accept Christ that Jesus enters our life. Our body truly is a temple. This means we are in the temple day and night. Paul says, in whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, Do it all for the glory of God. We should spend time with God in prayer and worship. We should be active in reading His Word. That is how we learn more about Him, our Lord and Savior. Then we can give a testimony to our faith because our faith is active and central in our lives. When Jesus comes, we will know Him unlike non-believers. John says the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. We should be watching for the return of our Lord with eager anticipation. I personally can't wait to hear his voice, to be one who recognizes it above all others, with a trust and willingness to follow the one we are watching for. Verse 37 and 38, Luke 12 again. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Blessed are those servants. These servants, have you thought about what or who they are serving? We are talking about God's kingdom. This is that place we're in, the now and not yet. The now is... We as believers who have put our faith in Christ 
are experiencing a, re a reconciliation to God and a fellowship with Him in the here and now. But the full reconciliation of all creation is yet to come. So as servants in God's kingdom, how and who are we to serve? We are representatives of God's kingdom. Therefore, we are to be good witnesses or ambassadors for Him. We are to encourage one another with the bread of life, that is, the Word of God. We should be witnessing to the world around us. Just look around you and pay attention. There are so many opportunities. You can comfort someone who is hurting by using the Word of God. You can pray for them or with them. Does someone you know have a question about the Bible? Help them. And if you don't know the answer, study it with them. Work through it together. In doing these things, you are serving those around you. It's just a small snippet of what we can do. 37, verse 37 said, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline at table, and He will come and serve them. What an incredible picture this is. We have actually seen this put to practice already. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. The master, the teacher, serving the servants. Our master has demonstrated his love for us in so many ways. He gave up all his heavenly glory and took on the nature of a servant, a shepherd for lost sheep. He then demonstrated the ultimate act of love by willingly giving himself up so he could pay the price, the debt that we owe to God. This is an expression of service and love that I don't think we can truly comprehend. First service I said, you know, we in our humanness think of the work that Christ did on the cross. And our minds go to the physical pain. Our minds go to hanging on a cross without being able to catch a breath of air. Sword in your side. Spikes through your feet and your hands. For us, that sounds like the most horrible thing that could happen. But hanging on that cross, he experienced the complete withdrawal of God's love and presence about him. And that's something that I don't think we can comprehend. And yet, that's the price that we would have to pay without Christ. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds him awake, blessed are those servants. This is another word picture of the faithful servants willingly and eagerly waiting with anticipation for the return of the master of the house. It doesn't matter what time he might return, 
they want to be ready to receive him into his own home. Therefore, showing not only their dedication as good servants, but also their respect and honor for him. Verse 39 and 40. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The sun is coming at an hour you do not expect means that there is no time to relax. You must be prepared at any moment. This takes us back to verse 35. Stay dressed for action, gird your loins, and keep your lamps burning. We should be always watching, we should be always doing, and we should be always ready. Think of this, if you are always watching, doing, and ready, it doesn't matter what time or when the master returns, you are prepared. It truly is about your focus. Now, if you take this a bit further and consider that all you have is the master's, you will find that your thoughts and focus is naturally always on him. All my money is his. My house is his. The woman I married is his gift to me, and she is his. Your children are his. The very breath you breathe is from him. With that in mind, how can your focus be anyplace else? Now, if you have the attitude that the master isn't coming anytime soon, so I can continue living my life in whatever manner pleases me, you may want to reconsider how you live. For you, he will come like a thief in the night, at a time you do not expect. You will find yourself dreading his return and trying to figure out a way or when it might be so so that you can clean up for his arrival. What an awful way to live a life. To live with a sense of dread and some anxiety or maybe complete indifference. Hearing the word of God, you are either blessed by it or you're cursed by it. Where do you fall? Are you longingly looking for his return or are you, or are you indifferent to it? I pray that you are blessed by the word of God and that this encourages you to continue in your faith and service to him. If you find yourself a little uncomfortable or unsettled by the word of God, then please take time to reflect on why that is. Do what we are called to do and spend time in a quiet place with God in prayer. Open your Bible and diligently seek to know the Creator of all things. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. To close, I would like to read from Revelation. This should be an encouragement to you in your eternal future as a faithful believer in Christ. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I know that I've talk to some of you about one of my thoughts about heaven and your eternal presence in heaven. And the thing that I look forward to as much as anything is in this place you are fully sanctified. I don't know about you, but sin is always on my back. There's a constant tension in life where you are battling with sin. In heaven, you will not have that tension anymore. The sin is completely gone. The freedom that that imparts or the wonder of that in itself is absolutely amazing. I was talking to somebody during fellowship between first and second service, and he brought up a point. He said, I don't believe that in heaven they're going to have the Ten Commandments posted on the wall. It's not going to be necessary. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for who you are, for the promises of your word, that we are able to open the Bible, learn more about you, who you are, what you have promised to believers, Lord, that your
plan of redemption from the beginning of time is unfolding as you see fit, all according to your will and your purpose. Thank you so much, Lord, for giving us your Son. Thank you for imparting the Holy Spirit to us as a guide and a counselor, Lord. I just pray that we will heed his counsel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Mitch. Would you please stand?